This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Tesco, we have amazing offers for you this Christmas. Like our Board B approved Tesco finest Irish whole and half leg of lamb, now half price. Or give yourself a treat. Starburst Fruity Chews 4-pack 180 gram, a range of Hunky Dory's Sharing Crisps, or My Body 1 litre bottles, and more, any 5 for 5 euro. And check out our brilliant wine offers. Casiero del Diablo Cabernet Sauvignon, Campo Viejo Tempranillo, or Torres Venusol, six bottles for 40 euro. Tesco, every little helps. Enjoy alcohol responsibly. So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me. Work. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but this is Aldous Huxley, a man haunted by a vision of hell on earth. A searing social critic, Mr. Huxley, 27 years ago, wrote Brave New World, a novel that predicted that someday the entire world would live under a frightful dictatorship. Today, Mr. Huxley says that his fictional world of horror is probably just around the corner for all of us. We'll find out why in a moment. place in society so everyone is happy it seems to me as though that's what we are striving to as a society i think all our or our provisions of having social welfare and having an education system that's accessible to most people and having health care and um, is ultimately designed to make people's lives better and better in, in one interpretation means happier. This is Science-ish, a show presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. 
man a few words. Dr. Michael Brooks. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> oh, no, much better the second time. <laughs> Keep doing that. Um, so the idea is that we will take a work of fiction and then unpack the science within it and try and ask three relevant questions, as relevant as, as can be. So this time we're going to be looking at the Aldous Huxley novel Brave New World. Now, first things first, Michael, when did you last read Brave New World? <laughs> so I read the whole book, I think in my 20s, or maybe even in my teens. But I, I kind of, you know, it comes back very quickly because, you you know, what you take away from it is this dystopian thing. And mm. it, you're, you're immediately in there thinking, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. Yeah, I think I'm going to be relying on it coming back quite heavily as well. <laughs> because uh, I, I read it, I think, when I was about 13. It was my favourite book for a few years. I re- absolutely loved it. But, uh, um, it. It does a appeal to that kind of yeah. young person who kind of wants to see the negative wants to see like you know the adults are making a terrible world for us but actually i think now nowadays i'm i'm not quite so convinced it's it's a dystopian the thing about the for anyone who hasn't read read the book brave new world it, it paints a picture of a society where everyone is content or pretty much everyone is content with their lot because they have been designed that way and castes are created alphas who are the kind of uh, intellectuals tall strapping you know sexy guys and very ladies. much like yourself uh, thank thank you michael and then epsilons yeah, that's me. Thank you. I d- didn't want to say it myself. <laughs> I think they're called semi-morons in the book, but I mean <laughs> morons. Um, full morons. Uh, but because of the way that they've been kind of manipulated, they are, they're contented. They don't sort of look at the other cast and think, ugh, yeah. I, wish I, was, uh, I wish I was a beater or whatever. And they are entirely obedient to the world state. Yeah. Well, almost um, entirely, because you get this character yeah. who, who decides that he's not happy with a lot. Things didn't go quite so well when he was sort of being created. Yeah, so this is uh, Bernard Marx, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, uh, who is an alpha, or and even an alpha plus, maybe. If I'd read the book recently, <laughs> I'd remember that. Um, and he, he basically is a bit shorter, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and he's basically got short man complex. He's annoyed. <laughs> so he's, he feels a bit disenfranchised by yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. And then there's another. There's a few other people who sort of question things, and then and then the savage John is is brought in from mm. one of these reservations, and then you know he's the prism through which you see that actually maybe this isn't such a fantastic utopia at all. There's an awful lot of science uh, and science yeah, fiction yeah. in in the book. So the first question, because many of of the humans um, in this limited, strictly limited population, they all die at sixty, don't they? I yeah, think. they're clones. So the first question is. Can we make human clones? Dr. Michael Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. I mean, we don't know because we haven't tried. We think we can't. But we can clone other animals. And we're, we're in a position where um, we've actually been playing with cloning since 1891, the first kind of, uh, sort of artificial cloning happened. So this would have been you know, very much in Huxley's mind in the 20s. Mm. And his brother was, a, was Julian Huxley, who was a big biologist. Um, his uncle was a guy called J.B.S. Haldane, who was an amazing sort of biologist, a big character. And they were all discussing all these kinds of things, you know, what you can do with this kind of new emerging biotechnology. They made the first artificial clone uh, by shaking apart a sea urchin embryo uh, so that the cells separated and they grew into two, two sort of identical uh, sea urchins. And, uh, and from there, people started wondering, you know, what can you do? And in the 1980s, made big, big steps forward in terms of producing artificial clones. Um, something else that uh, 
it's kind of amazing in, in the book is that this uh, these ideas of these hatcheries um so you have little vessels with these these babies being grown that predates test tube babies and uh, an ivf and yeah, stuff like yeah. that so it's, it's very prescient isn't it so i mean this is the beauty of it really is that you know he sort of takes cloning and say right you know let, let's do this and um and you know he obviously just envisaged a world where you would industrialize the process of of growing an embryo of of birth effectively um and this was way way before anybody was kind of really trying to do this or look at this on a on a human scale and then suddenly you know we had louise brown and she was born and she was fine and she was normal and all the predictions that this would produce monsters you know were just disproved in in an instant effectively mm. as soon as she was born but i have to say that when we did that when um Steptoe and Son and Steptoe and Edwards did this. <laughs> you, w- you wouldn't want Steptoe and Son involved, I think. <laughs> so when they did this, you know, people said you don't know well enough how to do it, and there are ethical questions over whether they told Louise Brown's mother the whole truth about how many attempts had failed and and gone sort of quite nastily wrong and things like that. So in the end, somebody just pressed ahead and did it, and uh, and we got this amazing revolution. And now you know we've got over four million test tube babies, IVF babies around the world. Everyone's very grateful that, that they did it. But yeah, it, there were question marks over it, just as there will be over cloning. Um, we have, as you say, had, had big advances in, in cloning. Uh, one, of the, one of the most sort of landmark experiments, I guess, was the cloning of the sheep, Dolly. Uh, and we spoke to her creator, Professor Sir Ian Wilmot. Clo- cloning involves two cells. You have to have an egg recovered from an animal at the time when usually it would be mated. It's not yet been fertilised. And you have to have another cell, in the case of Dolly, taken from mammary tissue of, of a, a pregnant animal. And what you do is you remove the genetic information from the egg and then introduce the genetic information from the mammary cell into that egg um, to, to complete it. And then the last thing you have to do is to kick that egg into, into activity. Pregnancy in sheep lasts 150 days, and so my colleagues manipulated the eggs in a lab one day and five months later a lamb was um, born. It's a rather protracted yippee, if you see what I mean. You know, it's a slow process. So really the, the magic moment was when a live lamb was born and took its first, first breath. Her name is Dolly. Seven months old, she may not be the monster imagined in a science fiction fantasy, yet the cuddly Finn Dorset lamb may represent a major landmark in the history of genetic engineering. Dolly is unique, the first ever sheep, indeed the first ever mammal to be born a clone of her mother. The tissue that we used to, to get the genetic information was mammary tissue, and, and one of the stockmen, John Bracken, who uh, watched the animals, uh, pointed out that... Uh, there was another well-known female who was well endowed with mammary tissue and she was christened after Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton's manager was repeated to have said, there's no such thing as bad publicity. A Church of Scotland report has called for an independent commission to be set up to examine the ethics of biotechnology. Each human life is unique, born of a miracle that reaches beyond laboratory science. I believe we must respect this profound gift and resist the temptation to replicate ourselves. The cloning procedure in all species, even if it's successful, is very inefficient and is often associated with the birth of abnormal offspring. And it would seem to be 
wrong to, to think of doing this whilst this is still the case. It's distressing enough if you have a farm animal bone which is abnormal. One, one example we had, we had a, a ram lamb bone that was beautiful to look at, very strong and, and fit, uh, but it panted all the time, as if it had been running around. It was panting all of the time. And despite our best efforts, we were unable to um, correct this, this animal's condition. So in the end, we decided it was kinder to euthanize the animal. And so I think as, as long as there is a, a significant risk of that sort of abnormal event, the procedure should be prohibited, as it is in this country, of course, um, in, in humans. I had no idea that um, Dolly the Sheep was named after Dolly Parton. I had no idea about that either. Moving on to what he ended with, what if we do overcome those problems? What are the ethical implications then? So if we're in a position where we can clone humans, should we? What should we do with them? How would we structure out? I mean, the the, the implications are huge, aren't they? They are huge. I'm one of those people who, you know, I I used to be much more down on science in terms of, oh, this is dangerous, I don't like what they're doing. The more I think about it, the more I think, do you know what? You know, we've never had anything significantly bad happen because of, you know, these kind of biotechnologies, these genetic technologies. So I don't think we should clone a human but i don't think we should necessarily rule out learning how to do something like that because you learn tricks while you're doing that that can be useful in other sort of medical purposes um and so you know we actually don't need to clone a human as such because we know how to take cells and reprogram them so you turn back the clock on these cells and you make them into what are known as pluripotent uh, stem cells, and they can then develop into lots of different types of, of, of other cells. So, you know, you can have skin, bone, muscle, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you just use them as seeds, effectively, just for, for growing new organs. So that could, you know, to- totally sort of revolutionise the idea of organ transplants. We've got stem cells currently being trialled in Japan, um, and they can give blind people their sight back. So if you've got macular degeneration, you can use these stem cells to grow a new retina. So they have medical uses, and, and this whole sort of field, I think, needs to be properly explored. Is there an argument, though, to say that the, the model suggested in, um, in Brave New World, where you have lower castes doing menial work but are engineered in such a way that they're perfectly happy doing that is that not something we could look at doing why, why would that be so wrong to create a, <laughs> to create an underclass who would do the, the things we don't want to do but do them you know like whistling yeah with happiness <laughs> because there's something in you that when you say that you know you're kind of creating strata of humans aren't you but I, the, the, it's almost they like, exist anyway don't they it just harks back to those arguments that people use to justify slavery, doesn't mm. it? Mm. People actually said, you know, the slaves are not capable of any, you know, the African slaves brought over to British plantations in the West Indies, not really capable of doing much beyond manual labour. Sure, but I guess that the, the point with that is they were wrong. Whereas yeah. if I've specifically manufactured some people who aren't able to do anything else because I've, I've made them that way, then I wouldn't be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> No, I think you'd still be wrong somehow. My, <laughs> yeah, I'd be wrong <laughs> somewhere along the line. My moral but not about sense, that assertion. My moral sense tells me that that this is not a place we want to go, is it? Because it's, mm. it's, you're you're basically you are doing that thing of playing God. 
Yeah. But in, in a really nasty overlord kind of way. So you're creating people who would work for you. It, but the, it, the thing just, that's so clever about Brave New World is that those people are, are happy. happy to do that work. Yeah. Um, but, I, I'm not even saying <laughs> that I would do this. <laughs> I think of, you are. I'm just I, I think, exploring, <laughs> I'm exploring I, I the if area. You had, if you had the technology, you would, you would clearly do this. <laughs> <laughs> that is very unfair. <laughs> I'm just trying to create a discussion. Okay, Rick, so you're not alone. Uh, some people do really want to create uh, clones of humans. I'm not saying that I want to, Michael. <laughs> I'm just interested. There, there are people out there willing and ready to do this. We are going to become gods. Period. If you don't like it, get off. You don't have to contribute. You don't have to participate. If you're going to interfere with me becoming God, I have big trouble. This is a problem about which I wrote uh, 30 years ago a fable, The Brave New World, which is uh, essentially the account of a society making use of all the devices at that time available in order to first of all to standardize the population to iron out inconvenient human differences uh, to create uh, so to say mass-produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system <laughs> Bottom level, orange bean, enjoy yourself. Bottom level, orange bean, enjoy yourself. What's happening here? This is a group of semi-moron epsilons that are going on a nature nausea reinforcement field trip to... I can see that. I meant what's taking you so long. Oh, right away, sir. There you are, all set. I happen to be the assistant director of the Central Hatcheries plant. Yes, sir. All circuit check. Really? These gammas... They're hardly brighter than a delta, or even epsilons. Oh, no. I'm sure any delta is much brighter than epsilons like those. That's one of the wonderful things about being a gamma. We're not too stupid and we're not too bright. To be a gamma is to be just right. In Brave New World, the, the drugs and so on are used to stunt intelligence and stunt growth of fetuses in these, in these hatcheries. And I guess then uh, the next question for us is, does socioeconomic class in, a, in our real world affect who you are and what you look like? So can you tell from looking at someone what social class they're from? I would say you can. Part of me thinks maybe that's the clothes they wear. I mean, if somebody's in mustard-coloured trousers, you know exactly what kind yeah. of social class they're I know from. how they voted. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and so do you think that, I don't know if it would necessarily um, be visible in, in the UK, but do you think there would be a noticeable correlation between heights and social class? And obviously social class is a fairly sort of nebulous concept anyway these days, but, yeah, yeah. but broadly speaking. I think so, yeah. 
it's to do with you know nutrition and everything else, mm-hmm. isn't it? So if you're actually from a, a difficult background and you had a difficult upbringing with not enough money and not enough food on the table or not enough of the right kind of food, then you're going to be stunted effectively to some degree. There is actually a lot of research as well that's been done into what we can uh, tell from our uh, our facial features in terms of social uh, upbringing and environment and so on. And I went to UCL to speak to Dr. Carmen Lefebvre about them. The original work that was done in this field actually looked at um, ice hockey players in Canada. Um, So I don't know that much about ice hockey, but from what I understand, there is something where you get a penalty and you actually have to sit sit out for a few minutes from the game. Yeah, the sim bin. The sim bin. (laughs) Um, And so during a season, you can add up for any player how many minutes they spend um, in this penalty box. And that's a measure of aggression because... Apparently, you get into that box for being aggressive toward another player. And they found that this very direct measure of aggression related to the width of the uh, hockey players' faces. I'm immediately feeling quite self-conscious and wondering how far apart <laughs> How am I looking? Not the- I think I've got quite a sort of long face rather than wide. Yes, I would agree with that. So we, um, we scale... Um, our width measure to the overall face size, so mm. to speak. So it's not about having a balloon head, it's about... Um, <laughs> it's never about having a balloon head. <laughs> <laughs> it never is. It's about um, your width relative to your height of your face. And yes, yeah, so I would say your face being relatively long, like you say, is not overly wide. So I would, I would say... So I'm a nice guy. You're probably quite a nice guy. No, I'm very happy with that. <laughs> um, and so if you were to just look at someone at random on the street, how much would you be able to guess about their personality from their face? So um, we know that uh, intelligence seems to be perceivable from a face to some degree. However, we don't understand entirely what the cues are that people use. So it's not the case, for example, of larger eyes make you more intelligent. But what we do know is that when we show people a, a bunch of faces and ask them how intelligent are they and they rate them, we find that there is a correlation between what people perceived and what is actually uh, the value of their intelligence. So that's incredible. So we're able to perceive someone's intelligence from their face intuitively. Yes, Because no one's like that. teaching us how to do that, are they? No, absolutely not. Um, we perceive all sorts of things intuitively from faces. So it turns out that you can predict election results pretty well by just looking at the candidates' faces. For example, there has been a study looking at, I think it was governors' elections in the U.S., um, and you, you would um, take the photographs of the two candidates and ask people in another country who've never heard of these people, never seen them before, who they think would be a better leader. Um, and those seemingly random decisions were actually incredibly good predictors of the election outcomes. And this has even been replicated with children, which I think is incredibly fascinating. I was going to say, it was like French kids, wasn't it? I read a, a study of. So, again, it's not a learned thing it's kind of it's coming from within us we just have a an innate sense of leadership or the the kind of faces that we want to lead us perhaps at least we're incredibly attuned to learning this information so testing children even at age three or four of course they have already gone through quite a long learning phase and so we can't claim innateness but we can say that something is perhaps a prepared learning mechanism, which means that we're sort of set up to pick up these cues very quickly in a way that, for example, we're not set up to learn to read. Achtung, Achtung, der Luftschutzraum, dies ist bekannt. 
So you've got a nice face. Lovely face. Yeah. I wonder what she'd have made of my face. I wish I'd come along now. Well, I mean, I can give you my own assessment. Yeah, go on, if you like. Go on, then. Well, you've got... You've got a friendly face. All oh, right. But I don't know what that means, really. Simple. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You do the translations. Um, but you've also you've got quite a wide face. Yeah. Which means that you're quite dominant. Does that make me dominant? Yeah, that would make you quite dominant. Yeah. Uh, okay. Your, your cheeks are quite far apart. I'll take that. Yeah, I think that like yeah, sort yeah, of a compliment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I, th- I think anybody's got to be happy with dominant, surely. Yeah. And then um, the intelligence thing. We don't know how we do it. We no. don't know what the cues are. No, no, no it doesn't, doesn't seem that we do. So if you give, uh, so Carmen, we, we were with her for a while, um, she was saying you can also do it with height. So if you just showed uh, ten faces uh, to people, they would then be able to order them um, in, in height order to a high degree of accuracy. No. Yeah, which is mental, isn't it? That is mental. Yeah, and the same with intelligence. I mean, obviously not 100% accurately, but so does the, a, a better correlation is than it just a long chance. face... Long body kind of that thing. was yeah. I, I got the giggles at one point because you said <laughs> that with. I think that I've got a short face right. because when people meet me, they're always surprised by how tall I am. And she said, "Well, maybe, but that would be surprising because you've got a long face. Normally, that would be associated with being tall because if you've got if the face has been growing long, then everything else has been growing long. And then obviously, <laughs> um, I, 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 I sniggered. <laughs> Your inner, inner schoolboy came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, to be fair, he's always looking <laughs> excitedly. Um, and, and also, uh, another thing that um, Khan went on to talk about is symmetry, and we associate symmetry um, with beauty, right. uh, but symmetry is also governed by various factors. We think um, that the reason for symmetry or asymmetry lies in development so while you're growing up um, of course your body grows um, and we think that uh, the more disruptions occur during development the more asymmetrical you will grow and so what kind of disruptions are you thinking of then typically it would be health disruptions so perhaps um, suffering illnesses and there's another thing which is um, actually psychological stress so there is some evidence that Uh, Things like, for example, going through a very difficult divorce as a young child might also influence... Shouldn't be married when you're a kid anyway, so... The divorce of your parents. (laughs) She'd love that joke. (laughs) (laughs) While we have been perfectly conditioned to want only what we have and to have only what we want and are, therefore, always happy. The uncivilized ancients were prey to destructive emotions, such as ambition, hate, and love, which, of course, always led to violence, which in turn, naturally, led only to more violence. about this idea so in the book you have these casts and they are created by you know using various stimulants or I guess depressants during the fetal development Um, and they end up being very happy with their lot in life so whatever their task is whether they are sort of worker drones epsilons or they are the kind of you know um, high-end alphas everyone is content because they have 
I guess, what their mind and, and their body require. Could something like that happen, and would it be desirable? I would argue it's present already. I think people tend to be relatively happy. Of course, not everybody is very happy, but there seems to be surprisingly perhaps little um, association between your SES, your level of income or wealth, and your happiness. So it doesn't seem to be the case that the more um, money you have, for example, or the higher your status in society, the happier you are. Um, and, and what makes people content with their situation? A different uh, theories. So one theory is about social rank within your surroundings. So this assumes that it doesn't actually matter whether, a, for example, a state or a society is overall very rich or very poor. All that matters is that you're a little bit better off than the person next to you. So, for example, if you lived perhaps in a deprived council estate somewhere in England, you might still be pretty happy because you're the one who's best off out of the lot in the council estate. And it doesn't matter at that point that you still sort of at the bottom of society at large because you don't really get exposure to that. that that's interesting. So happiness being about a, a sense it could be better and it could be worse. And then you kind of you, know, you fit yourself into the, the grand scheme of things. Are you like, yeah. Yeah, this is okay. Yeah, I think so. I think that's, I mean, intuitively and sort of from what I know of the research, that seems to be something that might be going on, yeah. So our final question then, can you engineer happiness? And in Brave New World, you can to fairly large extent yeah, yeah. Um, and they use that drug soma yeah that's kind of uh, like an amazing euphoric drug that um, i think has no negative side effects um, and you take through a sort of chewing gum um, and then you end up having an orgy okay but can we in, in any way engineer happiness and also should we be doing yeah it? do we want who, to who decides what the markers are for happiness? For me, this is almost the scariest part of the whole thing because I, when you look around at society, you think there's lots of things that are kind of almost, you know, definitely engineered to keep people sort of docile, maybe is the word, you know, not not too rabid, not too, you know, discontent with poverty or, you know, inequality has never been higher. And I sort of think Huxley was onto something here. Also, I guess that from, from what... Uh, Dr. Carmen was saying about it, it all being relative. So you just look at you know the people around you. Within Brave New World, actually, it's the opposite because in the casts there's total equality, and so you just yeah. look at everyone else in your cast, and they've all got the same life basically. Yeah. And Huxley's argument is that would make you happy, but in in real life, I think Carmen is saying that that wouldn't. No, but if you combine it with that con conditioning that they had, like when they were babies and they were sleeping, listening to these sort of phrases that were telling them to be happy, maybe you can condition people. I know you can certainly give people, um, you know, medications, uh, you know, chemicals mm. that will change their perception of, you know, how happy they are. You know, there's this classic um, drug known oxytocin. You've probably yeah. heard of it. Yeah, and, and you can give that to people and they start to trust each other more. If you kind of take o oxytocin in the presence of other people, you kind of bond with them. And uh, and so you can imagine sort of scientifically setting up a kind of society where you at least went some way to creating Huxley's sort of brave new world. Should that be encouraged? Is that something that we we need to uh, applaud and do more of? Oh, 
Well, that's a big question, isn't it? Because you, you, you. Know, you get onto issues like MDMA, for instance, you know, a class A drug, which actually basically has very positive mood enhancing effects. But it's seen as dangerous because people don't like the idea that you can chemically alter moods. And that's not OK. It's not OK to do that. And so if we had something that, that you know, would do this job of, you know, equivalent to SOMA, where people would work just as hard, but actually they'd just be happier, I think there'd be a lot of reaction against it, a lot of, you know, res resistance to implementing it. Also, you know, who gets to decide whether it's good to be happy or not, or whether a bit of discontent maybe spurs you to be a bit more creative? Uh, you may find that if you engineer a happy society, you never get another good idea, another new invention, because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. If you're kind of happy, you're laid back, you're not actually thinking of anything new. So, you know, contrary to what you might expect, it might make the whole economy crumble. In the past, we can say that uh, all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing the environment in order to change the individual. I mean, there's been the political revolution, the economic revolution, the religious revolution. Uh, all these uh, aimed, as I say, not directly at the human being, but at his surroundings, so that by modifying the surroundings, you did achieve a, a, an effect upon the human being. You are viewing Helmholtz Watson's film planned perfection of community, identity, stability. At some point, I guess it was about 10 years ago now, I had this epiphany that there was actually a really interesting animal that uh, I had completely ignored that had very complicated interactions with all kinds of spaces, and that was human beings. And so then I made a deliberate shift to applying the tools of cognitive neuroscience and psychology to the relationships between people and the built environment. My name is Colin Allard. I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience. When you think about what architecture is for, I think that we often first think of the more pragmatic functions, uh, things like providing shelter, providing a container for our activities. But I think if you look back through the course of human history and what kinds of things were built and our earliest built forms, you can make a strong argument that the original objective, maybe the first objective of architecture was to influence our emotions. See, that's amazing. So when you look at like Victorian architecture and those sort of grand things, um, you can kind of, they do actually give you an emotional reaction. I always thought it was to do with the glorious past, but maybe at the time, actually, you got a kind of emotional reaction to these amazing buildings as opposed to the sort of 1960s brutalist architecture. Maybe. I mean, I, I grew up in Swindon, so... Uh, Stop I, showing off. <laughs> so, you know, I know the emotional effect of bad architecture. <laughs> <laughs> You're an expert in the field. Um, uh, the wrong sort of town planning or the wrong kinds of buildings, they're just horrible to be around, aren't they? Mm. So can we engineer happiness through architecture? I think the answer is definitely yes. I think I wouldn't necessarily always couch it in terms of the word happiness, but you can certainly affect things like people's uh, interest, their engagement, their feelings of comfort and security and safety in all kinds of ways in, in urban design. 
And I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things that we're very interested in in the research that we do in our laboratory is, is the design of, of building facades. So if you think about it, if you're, if you're a pedestrian out for a walk in a, in a city, what you're really exposed to is mostly just the skins of the buildings that surround you. And one idea is that there's kind of a, a, a sweet spot for complexity. We don't like to have too much of it. So if you think of something like the, the blazing neon and, and signage in something like a Times Square, that can tend to overwhelm us. But by the same token, we also don't like to have these long, bleak, blank facades. But there's all kinds of other ways in which urban design can influence how we feel. Uh, a lot of them have to do with, with geometry. So what I mean by that is that how a streetscape is designed or even a building interior is designed will have a strong influence, of course, on where people go, but also, more importantly, how they collect. And of course, one of the things that makes us happy in public spaces, in most cases, is to find ourselves in crowds of like-minded individuals. People love more than anything else to uh, to watch people. So getting back to geometry, by designing uh, the layout of a space in a particular way, you can actually tweak uh, where people collect, where they like to go, and how likely it is that they are to to encounter one another. So Colin thinks that people watching is a is a big factor in in people's happiness and that bringing people together so that they meet each other when they're out and about will will increase their happiness that is in direct opposition to my experience of life which is <laughs> I hate crowds I don't want to be around people. Oh, but it's not crowds, is it? It's, it's fascinating people. So if you sit like in the atrium of the British Museum or something like that, it's a big open space, so there's plenty of room. And it's kind of, I, do, I find it fascinating to sort of just sit there and watch people and see what they, they get up to. And you have different Yes, no, I, I get people watching. It. I like sitting, yeah, in, yeah. sitting in Pret and watching people walk past. Yeah. But then when I go out onto the, onto the street, I find the presence of other people annoying. So the idea of sort of making convergences around the place... Of angers me. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, oh, it's not your fault, Michael. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, therapy issues here. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> but is that is that what Colin is saying when he says people coming together, or does he just mean more places where people are visible? I think he wants. He thinks that we emote positively when we're in spaces with other people, sort of busying ourselves, just everyone going about their lives. As long as it but... looks like the other people are worse off than us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's interesting what he said, for instance, about blank facades, because I completely get that. If you're yes. in a kind of very blank environment, that's really off-putting. There's a thing about some of the uh, Apple uh, buildings, isn't there, that Steve Jobs had one corridor so that everyone would walk through the same corridor and it would kind of promote um, a sense of e equality and, uh, and what have you, and, and, and even creativity. I, again, I don't quite get why that would work. Well, I get I, the idea of open plan. Yeah. So, I mean, this is happening a lot now with sort of new designs, certainly university buildings and academic buildings, where, you know, it used to be that you'd, like, put off all the old fusty academics into the senior common room on the side and they would never interact with anyone else. And now, you know, the, the modern way to design, say, a physics building is to have a huge 
you know, a communal space or your coffee space uh, where you eat together, you, you know, and you get these sort of serendipitous conversations between people who happen to overhear what somebody else is saying to somebody else. And, and, okay. and so you can create these. Um, the classic example is uh, a place called the Perimeter Institute in Canada, which is the kind of best theoretical physics institute in the world. And uh, that has this amazing bistro space where people just basically arrive through the front doors and they're, they're sort of in the bistro. And lots of them actually don't get out of there, you know, even get to their offices by lunchtime kind of thing, because they just get caught there and they'll start talking to somebody and there's coffee on tap, there's free coffee. And, and they just created this space so that, so that people would work together and be much more creative. So you can definitely engender a good sort of creative atmosphere if you get your architecture right. There are reasons to kind of muse over the possibilities for malevolent, I suppose you'd say, uh, combinations of technology and urban design that could move us in the direction of the kind of society that was described in in Brave New World. For example, one of the things that that I've looked at uh, a little bit, and I'm in fact actually a little bit involved in this in some of my research, is the idea of something like a responsive home. So, so what I mean by a responsive home is a, is a home that has some ability to sense your movements, your behavior, maybe even your moods, and respond to how you're feeling and what you're doing. And when you first hear about that kind of design, in a way it sounds sort of lovely, that you could imagine having almost an empathic relationship with your with your home so that it knows how you feel and responds accordingly. And if you're, if you're sad, it makes you a nice cup of tea and maybe plays some soothing music. But on the other hand, the, the big question, and this is a question that, that kind of telescopes up in scale when you think about something like the smart cities movement, it sounds kind of nice. It sounds as though we can really leverage technology to make life more pleasant for us. But whenever you have these systems that are cocooning you in a way in an environment, then there is a set of complicated algorithms or recipes for uh, making those designs work. And there's often going to be cases where there's somebody who has their, their finger on the button of what makes a responsive design. And it's not necessarily going to be you. So the individual user of the city, the home, the building, uh, surrenders a degree of control over their own environment. And they're surrendering it to somebody who may have a vested interest in making them do something, be somewhere, buy something, or or be more happy. Be more happy, he says. Be more happy. People want us to be more happy. My instinctive reaction to that is like, oh, I don't want this future. Yeah. Happy by what standard? Happy, you know, the kind of, you know, listen to bubblegum pop music kind of happy, kind of artificial kitsch kind of happiness. I don't think happiness is necessarily what I'm striving for in that context. You know, I'm, I'm happy because I create something and I create something because I'm unsatisfied or dissatisfied with, you know, where I'm at. And so I just think this whole sort of 
notion that you know architects might be designing houses that that you know know when you're unhappy and and actually it's happening with clothing as well like wearable technology that senses your emotions and and tells you to calm down or you know or take a oh, deep if breath my watch tells me to calm down <laughs> it's gonna happen it's getting smashed <laughs> it is gonna happen and it, they'll be saying oh your your blood pressure is up your heart rate is elevated maybe just you know take five minutes to do a bit of yoga and uh, also it's about the how prescriptive it is yeah and yeah. who is deciding what makes me happy or what makes one happy yeah um and and the power that those people who who i don't know will never meet are kind of you know coming up with this this list of criteria um that they're then going to feed into my house yeah to try yeah. and govern the way that i i lead my life that feels terrifying and i think a lot of this stuff is very simplistic as well because what makes one human being happy is is not what makes another happy quite often i'm made happy at other people's misfortune as well so you know how does that work (laughs) (laughs) that whole schadenfreude thing you know it's got to kick in somewhere (laughs) you're just a nasty bastard aren't you basically (laughs) i'm not making a race of slaves (laughs) they're not slaves they want to be doing it (laughs) that's the thing (laughs) because i've designed them that way (laughs) and i've told them that they're happy (laughs) um but is are, are we scaremongering a little bit because how you know how far will this go presumably we'll always have the choice like if i think that a house is going to be able to make me happier then i can opt for that but if i don't then equally no one's going to make me have one of those houses not yet but what what if they withdraw other kinds of houses so that's the only kind of house you can actually buy. Do you think you'll ever end up in a house that tells you to make up with your wife? <laughs> no, no, I'd break down Good. the walls. <laughs> um, so let's let's do a quick uh, summary of our of our three questions and see if we've got answers to them. So first of all, can we make human clones? Not yet. Not but we yet. will. We will. And then we'll farm them for organs. Quite possibly. Okay, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> does uh, our socioeconomic class determine things about who we are and what we look like? Sort of inconclusive. It feels that you can tell lots about people from their physical appearance. Yeah, I, I, I would say that you can. I, I think a lot of the times, and clearly, you know, what she was saying about the fact that you can recognise a leader... You know, I think there must be a lot in there that we don't really understand Mm. about what we're processing, but we are processing it. And our final question, can we engineer happiness? I think maybe we can, but it's about who is defining happiness. That's the important thing, isn't it? Yeah, I'm convinced you can't, because I think think human beings are diverse enough that some of them are quite happy being miserable. Mm. Uh, Some of them, not, you know, miserable, miserable, but, you know, there's a certain pleasure in telling the world to fuck off basically but don't don't you think there are there are measures you know some of which we just we just talked about so whether it's through architecture or through uh, certain drugs um that would mean you could make the uh, your measure of well-being as a whole go up in a city or a country i'd be quite interested to know whether you know the singapore government is doing a bit of this because I think that's a place where it's all engineered. The whole place is engineered. And, you know, it's only 50 years old as a country and they've done masses amount of buildings and stuff. And they're all quite quirky, wacky buildings and it's kind of a strange place to be in. And it kind of does make you happy. So, you know, maybe Singapore is the place to look for a brave new world. 
So what does it matter what things were like when it wasn't perfect? Excellent point, but quite misguided. Since then, I have noticed uh, with increasing dismay that uh, a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true, that uh, a number of techniques about which I talk seem to be here already and that there seems to be a general movement uh, in the direction of this kind of ultimate revolution, this, this method of control by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which by any decent standard they ought not to enjoy, the enjoyment of, uh, of servitude. You are becoming gods. There's a new master of creation, and it's you. You've unraveled DNA. You're five years away from building your own people, and at the same time, you're cultivating bacteria strong enough to kill every living thing. Do you think you're ready for that much power? You lot? You lot! You cheeky bastards! Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. This episode featured Professor Sir Ian Wilmot, Dr. Carmen Lefebvre, and Professor Colin Ellard. The executive producers were Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. This winter, Borgosh Energy is here to help. So if your boiler breaks down on the coldest day of the year, don't worry. Our dedicated winter repair team is at the ready. And we know the value for money is more important than ever. That's why with our winter price pledge, we're freezing our electricity and gas prices so you can keep cosy for the same great value. It helps to be with Borgosh Energy. Search Borgosh Energy Boiler Repair. Borgosh Energy will guarantee no price increases in residential gas and electricity until at least March 2021.